Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. And uh, the passages will not be on the screen today, so if I could get somebody to sit with us. Uh, our visitor on the back row and share your Bible. I'd appreciate that. Thank you, Brother Robbie. Second Peter chapter three, uh, verse three. Title of the message today is the second coming of Jesus Christ. The second coming of Jesus Christ. My text comes out of Second Peter. As you recall, Peter walk with our Lord, live with our Lord, and eventually loved our Lord. And he writes, beginning at verse 3, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, that means mockers, walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? In other words, where is Jesus? Knowing this first, talking to Christians, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own sensual pursuits, their own desires, their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? So, Lord God, we uh, thank you for this opportunity to preach your word. We thank you that Jesus is coming soon. We pray, Lord, that uh, your grace and mercy would be with us today. And if there is one in the room who is yet to trust Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we pray that today would be their day of salvation. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days, we are living in the last days, scoffers and mockers and those who will walk after their own lust, and they will deny the coming of Jesus Christ. They will deny that the living God will return. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Where is Jesus Christ? And that happens even as I speak. It's been 20 centuries, 20 centuries since Jesus walked on, our, on the face of the earth. It's been 20 centuries since he ascended into heaven and promised that uh, he would return. So during that time, many have come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, but others have continued to reject the gospel of Jesus. And as a result of their rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ, these mockers have moved into our universities. These mockers have moved into our workplaces. These mockers have moved into our schools. We live with mockers in our own households. Uh, the Bible is true. And since the Bible is true, then we must adhere closely to what the scriptures are saying. The title of this message is The Second Coming of Christ. The Second Coming of Christ. For 20 centuries, the church has waited for Jesus to return. During the early days of the church, believers thought that Jesus' return would be imminent. At any moment, our Lord would come back to earth. But as the centuries went by and the church or the Catholic church took over uh, the world, the religious world, the focus became on the Catholic church as opposed to the second coming of Christ. It's only been during the last few centuries that the church has begun to refocus on the idea that Jesus is coming again soon. We know that the Bible is a true book. We know that the Bible is a true word. So we trust what the Bible has to say about 
the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you would, we find that the second coming of Christ is our hope. The second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. Everyone in this room has trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. You are the church. You are the called out ones. You are the ecclesia. You are the ones that Christ is coming back for. He is our hope. The second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. Turn with me, if you would, to act. Uh, correction. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> 2 Timothy chapter 3, the first verse. A very familiar uh, passage of scripture. We're talking about the second coming of Christ this morning, and the second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. New Testament. Kind of waiting for the pages to stop turning. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. For men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, meaning no self-control, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, meaning reckless, high-minded, lovers of pleasures, plural, more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, being spiritual, being religious, but denying the power thereof, Bible adheres, it tells us to, from such, turn away. Dropping down to verse 7, these folks are ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. When I first read this passage over 40 years ago, and it talked about the last days, I thought that that was somewhere in the distant future. I had no idea 40 years ago that these words applied to the times that we live in. We read through this list and we generally basically see what life on earth is like around us now in the year 2019. We see that men are without natural affection. We don't love each other. Recently in the state of New York, a law was passed that allows late-term abortion. And I hasten to say that abortion is a tragic choice. But in the case of this particular law that the New York legislature passed, it allows for late-term abortions up to the moment before the baby is born. Did you hear me? Up to the moment before the baby is born. And the legislators who voted to pass this law, they stood up and they applauded. Down in Virginia, a similar law was put uh, before the legislator, legislature. And this law allowed for the baby to be born and then for the doctors in consultation with the mother to determine if she wanted to terminate the life of the baby. And all this is current events. I'm not making this stuff up. It's in the news. So a baby could be born in Virginia, bundled up, made comfortable, the governor of Virginia said, and then in consultation with the mother, determined or not 
whether or not that baby would be, would be allowed to live. Fortunately, uh, that bill was shot down, and uh, amen. And uh, fortunately, uh, the governor who went out on the limb in support of that bill finds himself in a great deal of uh, conflict and trouble right now. But the point that in our day and age, we can move from late-term abortion to infanticide is indicative that we're living in the last days. The Bible says that the last days are dangerous and perilous times. Folks are without natural affection. They're incontinent, lack self-control. We see it all the time. We see videos of people on airplanes being escorted off because they're throwing a fit on the airplane. And they're fighting with the stewardesses, or they're fighting with the passengers, or they're, they're just uh, cursing uh, out uh, anyone who gets in their way. Lack of self-control. And then we see a, a form of godliness in our society, where you ask somebody, do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? If you were to die today, would you go to heaven or hell? And they would say, well, I'm spiritual. Or they respond, I'm religious. Or they might even say, I'm a Baptist. Or I'm a Methodist. Or I'm a Presbyterian. Fill in the blank. That is not what saves the human soul. Being spiritual and being religious doesn't save the human soul. I'm a good person. I go to work. I pay my taxes. I raise my children. Being a good person doesn't save the human soul. What saves the human soul is the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. What saves the human soul is the blood that he shed to cover your sins. What saves the human soul is the fact that he was buried and that he rose from the grave. And that all who believe and trust in him will have, shall have eternal life. The Bible says this know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. It's tough being a Christian. However, I think it's very exciting to be a Christian in this particular point in history. I say exciting because I know that one day the eastern sky is going to split and Jesus Christ himself will return from heaven. I know that Christ himself is coming to get his church and take us back to heaven with him and will return again on that fateful day when the world is judged. I put my hope in it and I believe it because the Bible clearly says it. The second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. I just read this list in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 through 9, and it gives us an indication of what our world is like. It's tough going to school. It's tough going to work. It's tough going to the universities. It's tough dealing with next-door neighbors who are not believers, with the music jumping at 3 o'clock in the morning. You get, up and, you get up and you walk out, and there are beer cans all over the place, and you have to step over the garbage. That's the world we live in. We're surrounded by unbelievers, but we are God's remnant. He has us in the palm of his hand. So our hope, church, is in the second coming of Jesus Christ. If you will, turn over to Acts chapter 1, verse 9. Acts chapter 1, very familiar package, passage. Acts chapter 1. The title of this message is The Second Coming of Christ, and the first point is The Second Coming of Christ is the Hope of the Church. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. 
And the Bible says, and when he, that's Jesus, had spoken these things, while they, the apostles, beheld, he, Jesus, was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, verse 10, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Then verse 12, returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet or Olives. In verse 9, the Bible says when he had spoken these things, what things? What Jesus was talking about, essentially that it's not for the apostles to know when he would return and restore the kingdom to Israel. That was the question. They wanted to know. Wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know in verse 7. But then he goes on and tells the apostles what the mission is. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. That's what our task is. That's what our job is as believers in Jesus Christ. So those are the things that he spoke of. And once he had finished speaking, he ascended into heaven. He ascended from the Mount of Olives. And when you go to Israel, and we'll all get there one way or the other, when you get to Israel, you can actually stand on the Mount of Olives. And behind you, over this giant mountain, is Bethany, where Mary and Martha lived. But in front of you is Jerusalem. And in order to get to Jerusalem, you just walk down a path that Jesus probably walked down many times. And there's Jerusalem right in front of you. So from, Mount of, from the Mount of Olives, Jesus ascended into heaven. And the Bible tells us that he will return to earth at that same place. That's what we're waiting for. That's where our hope lies. That's where our faith rests in the fact that Jesus Christ will return again to the Mount of Olives. We face many difficulties as Christians. We're challenged to the right. We're challenged to the left. There's always somebody questioning our faith. We're always being observed, especially in the workplace. If you're a Christian, why did you do such and such and so and so? If you're a Christian, why did you say such and such and so and so? We're held to an incredibly high standard. But that's good. Because we are ambassadors of God. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. So when the going gets tough, we look toward heaven. We don't look toward our intellect. We don't look toward our opinion. We don't look toward our philosophy. We look toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who himself set an example for us. We are not facing anything, church. We are not facing anything, believers, that Jesus Christ did not face on earth. He was betrayed by friends. His family turned their backs on him. He was brutalized by the Roman army. He was despised by the religious. Yet in all that, he gave us an example showing you how to live. There's nothing that you encounter in your day-to-day -day walk with Jesus Christ that someone in this book has not encountered before or to a more intense degree. So when you need an example, when you need hope, when you're feeling despondent, when you're feeling down, when you feel like you can't take another step in this Christian life, open the book. Open the book. Open the book. And find an example in these pages. It might be Adam. It might be Eve. It might be David. It might be Esther. 
It might be Job. It might be Solomon. It might be Jesus Christ himself. Could be Paul. It might be Peter. But the example is in this book. The example are between these holy pages. Cherish the book. Love the book. It's not something that you take and toss into the back seat of the car once the morning service is over. It's something that you, it's precious to us. It's treasure. If this was a diamond out of South Africa, you would hide it. You would wrap it up. You would, you would stick it under your bed. You'd do anything in your power to protect it if it was a diamond. But this is beyond diamonds. It's beyond gold. It's beyond silver. It's beyond emeralds. Beyond rubies. This is the holy word of God. It is the mind of God. Do you know what you have in your hands? It's the mind of God. And his thoughts, his words, his direction, his guidance will lead you through any situation on this earth. And the key to the Bible is the fact that God the Father sent God the Son to cover your sins. From the book of Genesis to the end of Revelation, it's all about the coming of Jesus Christ. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, God made a provision for their sin. That's, that provision is the Messiah. And in Genesis chapter 3, we're told that the Messiah is coming. And in Revelation, we see that the Messiah comes. And in the middle of that, the Messiah is born. So it's all about the coming of Jesus Christ. That's where our hope lies. That's where our, our, our faith lies. That's where our ability to live this Christian life lies. The second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. The Bible says in uh, verse 10 of Acts chapter 1, And while they, the apostles, looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These are angels. And they say unto the men of Galilee, Why stand ye gazing into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go. Why do I read that passage again? Because these very men who saw Jesus ascend into heaven gave their lives for the gospel of Jesus Christ. People don't die for myths. People don't die for fantasies. People don't lay down their lives for legends. They lay down their lives for real-life experience. And in the real-life experience of Peter, in the real-life experience of Bartholomew, in the real-life experience of Matthew, they saw Jesus ascend into heaven. They heard the angels say, he's coming again. And their lives changed in that moment. They went forth to carry out the mission of Jesus Christ, to spread the gospel to the othermost parts of the world. And they were all killed. They were all killed, except for John, the teenager. He grew to be an old man, and he wrote the book of uh, the Revelation. But everyone else died a horrible death. If you put it in earthly terms, think about the men who signed the Declaration of Independence when the American colonies separated themselves from England and King George III. We call it the American Revolution. All those men who put their names on that document. Many were killed. They all lost their property. Their families were separated. All because they had an idea they believed in. That idea became the United States of America. And they fought a great revolutionary war, where if you go back east into New York and Manhattan, 
um, and to uh, Manhattan. That's where Alexander Hamilton is buried. Maryland, all those original 13 colonies. If you go back there, you see the, the marks to this day of the war that was fought for American independence. Those men gave their lives for something they believed in. The same holds true with the apostles. They gave their lives because they knew that Jesus is coming again. We don't have to do that. We have to have a nice, comfortable church and sanctuary to sit in. Temperature is regulated, freezing outside, nice and warm and cozy in here. Surprised we don't have people walking up down, coffee, tea. Very comfortable being an American Christian. We have bright lights. We're not reading the Bible by kerosene lamps. We have wonderful pianists and piano players and a, and a tuned piano, not a guitar with four strings. We're doing pretty good here. Nobody's kicking in the back door holding a gun to uh, Pastor Richard's head saying, renounce the gospel or I'll kill you. That happens all around the world. So we're doing pretty good. So why, why aren't we living a stronger Christian life? Why aren't we living a courageous and a bold Christian life? Because the world that we're around and the world that we live in holds up victimhood. You're a victim because fill in the blank. You're a victim because you grew up on an Indian reservation. You're a victim because your ancestors were brought here in chains. You're a victim because you were forced to build the American Railroad. You're a victim because of your gender. You're a victim because of the color of your skin. Victimhood is taking over the world stage. And it's not just in the United States. Wherever you go, the same philosophy is taking root. I'm a Christian, and as a Christian, I am not a victim. My chains of victimhood were shattered by Jesus Christ. The moment that stone rolled away, the moment I put my faith and confidence and trust in the resurrected Savior, all dependence on the world system went away. My dependence rests on Jesus Christ. My dependence rests on what the Bible has to say. My dependence rests on the fact that Christ is coming again. And all this victimhood and this sense of persecution that the world owes me something, it'll go away. The world owes us nothing. We owe Christ. We owe Christ who took our place on the cross at Calvary. That's where our allegiance lies. We owe Christ who willingly took the punishment. And we know that he is coming again. So that's where the Christian's hope lies. It lies in the fact that Jesus is coming again. As he left, so shall he return. Secondly, the second coming of Christ is a warning to the ungodly. The second coming of Christ is a warning to the ungodly. First, the second coming is the hope of the church. Secondly, it's a warning to the ungodly. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1. The second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. The second coming of Christ is a warning to the ungodly. 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 7. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 7. The Bible says, 
And to you who are troubled, rest with us. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. The you in this passage is the church at Thessalonica. The us is St. Paul, a fellow named Savannah, and Timothy. This letter is written to the church at Thessalonica. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, uh, verse 4, Paul says, So that we ourselves glory in you. We glory in you in the churches of God. Why? For your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. So the church of Thessalonica is going through some challenges. Paul says they're going through persecutions and they're going through tribulations. But the key word is that they endure. They're enduring through faith and they're enduring through charity. So Paul in verse 7 says, to you, church, who are troubled, rest with us. Why? When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, verse 8, in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. That's a promise of God's judgment on the ungodly. What's interesting about that promise is that it's been on this page for close to 2,000 years. It's a warning. It's a warning. The Bible teaches that the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord does not send people to hell. People send themselves to hell. The Lord's not willing that any should perish. That's a true word. He wants men to turn from their sins and trust him. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not a prayer. It's a change in position. A change in your relationship with God. And to get you to change, God warns the ungodly. Now, you may not be a serial killer, I hope. However, if you haven't repented and turned from your sins, you may as well be a serial killer. Because the serial killer's judgment and your judgment will be the same. Eternal damnation. Fire, destruction. That's why you have mockers in the world. One, because they don't want to repent from their sins. And secondly, because they don't want to acknowledge the coming judgment. Who wants to think about spending eternity in hell? So the mockers continue to reject Christ. But God, in his mercy and in his grace, continually warns the ungodly. That's his pattern all the way through the Bible. It was the pattern before the great flood came. It was his pattern at Sodom and Gomorrah. It was his pattern when the uh, Babylonian armies uh, invaded. It's his pattern all the way through. God hasn't changed. He hasn't. God is merciful. God is just. God is patient. God is love. 
God is merciful. God is just. God is patient. God is love. He loves you so much, ungodly person in this room today, that he allowed Jesus Christ to take your place on that cross at Calvary. It should have been you paying for your own sins. But God the Father became flesh, dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. When Jesus walked the earth 20 centuries ago, he came on a mission. And his mission was to give his life for you, the ungodly. Back during the Vietnam War, there was a young private first class named Milton Olive, 82nd Airborne, paratrooper. His uh, unit was being attacked by uh, the Viet Cong. And during the course of this hand-to-hand -hand combat, the uh, Viet Cong threw a hand grenade into the, the foxhole that he was sharing with other paratroopers. Private Olive jumped on top of that hand grenade and he covered the blast with his body. He was about 18 years old. Hand grenade killed him instantly, but he saved the lives of his fellow paratroopers. He willingly laid down his life for those men during the Vietnam War and he was a recipient of the Congressional Medal of Honor. I'm sure he would have preferred to live to be an old man but he gave up his young life so that his fellow soldiers would survive. The Viet Cong in our Christian life is the world system, the flesh, and the devil. And their mission is to tear you down. Their mission is to kill your soul. Their mission is to keep you separated from God and Jesus Christ. But Christ had a mission of his own, and his mission was to jump on the hand grenade, the hand grenade being sin. His mission was to take the blast in his own body when the Roman soldiers pushed that crown of thorns down onto his brow and the blood flowed into his eyes. When they tied him to a post and they shredded his back so it looked like ground beef with a cat and nine tails. When the sword was, when the spear was poked and stuck into his side to ensure that he was dead. He took all that on himself so that you wouldn't have to. I have one word for those actions. It's love. It's love. God sent his warning to the ungodly. Doesn't want the ungodly to perish. The Bible tells us that there will be a horrible destruction, a horrible judgment upon those who reject Jesus Christ. But if you haven't accepted him as Lord and Savior today, if you haven't trusted him to forgive your sins, you do not have to endure this destruction. Why? Because the Bible says, warning, warning, warning. Destruction on the way. Stop. Go no further. The bridge is out. Stop, go no further, the floods are coming. Stop, go no further, it's a fire zone. It's the warning of God for the ungodly. Second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. 
second coming of Christ is a warning to the ungodly. The thing about being ungodly is that the ungodly enjoy being ungodly. We're looking at uh, Revelation in our life connection class. And a repeated theme after the church is raptured is that judgment pours out on the earth in the future and sinners refuse to repent. Even though God's judgment, rivers turning to blood, rocks falling out of the sky, all sorts of things, all sorts of things are happening. But in the book of the Revelation, in the future, sinners refuse to repent. The same holds true today. You go out, amen? Stay with me. You go out and you knock on the door. If they open the door, you introduce yourself, you offer them a gospel track, and they take it gladly and say, what time is the church service? Is that what happened? Of course not. Of course not. If you get away without them cursing at you, you're doing pretty good. If you get away without them sicking the dog on you, you see all those beware of dog signs out there. That's for you. <laughs> if you can get away without them sicking the dog on you, you're doing pretty good. Generally, they'll say, I'm not interested. Generally. But it will get to the place the Bible tells us that they won't be polite anymore. That they're going to celebrate the deaths of Christians. They're going to celebrate the death of believers in Jesus Christ. A wholesale persecution is on the way. Right now they're being polite. But the ungodly don't mind being ungodly. That's where the filth on the internet comes from. That's where the filth in the TV uh, commercials come from. I'm old school. I remember they used to sell Jack, Cracker Jacks. You didn't need a, need a woman in a bathing suit to do it, you know? You know, Cracker Jacks, eat it, it's good, you know? Not anymore. Everything that's sold out there has got some aspect of uh, uh, a person, either uh, a man showing off his pecs or uh, some uh, young lady. That's the world we live in. And it's being driven, that world system is being driven by Satan behind the scenes, but there are people out there who willingly come under the demonic influence and pump that information and knowledge into our heads, into our hearts, into our minds, into our souls if we don't serve as watchkeepers and protect ourselves. The ungodly don't mind being ungodly. I was coming into church this morning, big billboard up the street on Normandy, advertising a local casino. And something, you know, we just get oblivious to. We drive by it, you know, every Sunday. Don't pay any attention to it. So I'm, I'm preaching this morning, but it caught my eye, you know. And I said, here we go. You know, big old billboard. Come into this casino. Bring your rent money, Stephen. Steph, Stefan, bring your rent money. Okay? You, you want to go to McDonald's afterwards? Don't worry about that. Bring, your, come on, bring that money on up to the casino. I'll make you rich. Stop by 7-Eleven uh, this morning. Pick up the paper before I came in. And what do folks do on Sunday morning at 7-Eleven? I'll tell you what they do. They stand there and they buy lottery tickets. Lottery tickets. Spending the rent money, spending the food money, spending the baby's diaper money. Hoping to hit it rich. Who's driving that? The ungodly. The ungodly. Whatever money I have in my pocket is money that was given to me from God. 
and I have a responsibility to spend that money wisely, not frivolously, or hoping to get the right ticket or uh, a chance uh, one out of 70 million, you know, to, to win the lottery. Terrible odds, amen? Terrible odds. So that's when, uh, when the lottery gets up to $560 billion or something crazy, and you feel that urge <laughs> to put that dollar down. Don't do it! <laughs> Turn around, flee like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. Hit it! Get out that door. Take that dollar and get yourself a cup of coffee. See, with, use it for something, tie 10% of it. Do something of, of value to it. Give it to a homeless person. But don't waste your money playing the devil's game. The ungodly don't care. All they want is your money, your heart, your mind, and your soul. Your soul. Second coming of Christ. It's the hope of the church. It's a warning to the ungodly. I love God because he first loved me. I love God because he first loved me. I was 41 when I got saved. Did not grow up in the church. Didn't hear the gospel until I was 28. And up to that point, I didn't think I was doing anything that would send me to hell. Thought I was a good person not knowing that my goodness wasn't enough to save my soul. So at 28, somebody handed me a gospel tract on a Sunday morning, knocked on my apartment door. I was living in Hollywood, not married. I answered the door. I still remember it. I was watching cartoons on Sunday morning, Saturday morning TV. That's when you could watch cartoons on Saturday morning TV. Roadrunner, Bugs Bunny, all those guys. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Enjoyed it. I opened the door. They handed me a gospel track. I looked at it. Thank you for your time. Took the track. Threw it on the kitchen table. Forgot about it. Went back to my life. Six months later, the Lord said, find that track. I did. And there was a prayer meeting on the Thursday night at 730 up in Hollywood. So I decided a little storefront church, and I went to it. Got there. Like the people, like the songs, a lot of energy, a lot of young people there, you know, like me. I say, yeah, yeah, I think I'll go back. So I committed myself to uh, God that night. Committed myself to the church that night. Got myself a black suit, white shirt, black tie. And for about 13 years, attended this church. And I preached, conducted weddings, buried folk, got my PhD, got ordained in the ministry. And I was lost as lost could be. I had never trusted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. I committed myself to the church. I committed myself to be there every time the door was open. I knocked on doors and shared the gospel with people. But I had a secret thought life. I had a secret life on the side. And it did not look anything like the life of a Christian and the life that a Christian should lead. And when I was about 40, a preacher walked up to me and said, I don't think you're saved. Look me right in the eye, brother. Gave it to me, both barrels. Boom! I don't think you're saved. You know? Wait, what, what, what do you mean? <laughs> hey, I'm Dr. Brooks. 
you know, I'm, I'm Reverend Brooks, you know. I preach, I do this, I do that. And uh, Holy Spirit gave him discernment. And what that means is that he knew that I just put on my Christian mask when I came to church on Monday through Sunday. <laughs> and then we had one day off. I put on my Christian mask and put on my Christian front. And uh, it took a while, but uh, he saw right through it. And I put up all the excuses. You're saying that because I'm black. Racism. <laughs> What's wrong with God? You know, I came to God. How come, God, how come God's uh, being mean to me now? And I blamed everybody. I blamed God. I blamed the racist. I blamed my father. I blamed my mother. I, went, I, I was just scrambling, trying to get out from under the thumb of God and his love for me. That was God's love and his grace and his mercy on me. I could have very well died of my sins and gone to hell. A Baptist. A Baptist. But I trusted Christ, and I'll give you the rest of that story at another time if you'd like to hear it. And uh, he saved my soul. And he saved my soul. That's the mercy that God has on the ungodly. He wasn't willing that I should perish, but he's willing that I would repent and trust him. So the second coming of Christ is a warning to the ungodly. Last but not least, for the Christian, the second coming of Christ directs your service. The second coming of Christ directs your service. If you would, Romans chapter 12. Another familiar passage, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12, first verse. Second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. Second coming of Christ is a warning to the ungodly. And the second coming of Christ directs your service. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Bible says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, talking to Christians, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. When Paul wrote these words to the church of Rome, he laid down the blueprint for what the reasonable service of a Christian is. And that's what those points are covered in the rest of chapter 12. Paul met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus. Paul had an encounter with Jesus. That's why he's called the Apostle Paul. Paul knows how the story ends. He knows that Jesus Christ is coming again. So when he writes to the church at Rome, he's writing with a full understanding of the complete picture of the Christian life. Christ was born. He was martyred. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. He's coming again. So when Paul writes these words, He's telling Christians what to do in the meantime while we're waiting for our Lord to return. He tells us what our reasonable service is. In verse 12, he says, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. Verse 18, he says, if it be possible, I like that, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. 
if it be possible. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians. That's our blueprint until the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we, get, when we are converted, I just gave you my brief testimony. When we are converted, when we trust Jesus Christ, when you are born again, your earthly life should change. Your earthly life should change. You should be converted. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not a philosophy. It's not contained in the prayer. It's a change in your position, again, between you and God. And it's real simple. You don't have to go to seminary or Bible college like we did to understand the gospel. You don't have to be brilliant, but you don't have to be so humble that it's, uh, you can't understand it. It's simple. By faith, by faith, we believe that he died on the cross for our sins, he was buried, and then on the third day he rose again. That it's his work on the cross, his work, that pays the price for our sins. That's it. And it's got to be more complicated than that, preacher. Talk to me about eschatology. Talk to me about bibliology. Talk to me about angelology. Talk to me about soteriology. You want me to walk across Niagara Falls on a tightrope? We don't have to do that. It's real simple. It's real simple. And then when you make, when you have that change in position, you have a change of mind about sin, where you turn from sin and you turn to Christ, boom, it's an instant transition from life to death. And then your earthly life changes. You're able to love your fellow man. You're able to follow this list here. I love it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 1, verse 9, the Bible says, let love be without dissimulation. Before Christ, we couldn't love. Our love was conditional. Our love had strings attached. Our love was sensual. But once we come to Christ, our love becomes like the love of God, without bounds, without restrictions, without conditions. Then the Bible in verse 10 says, be kindly affection one to another. We were mean before we came to Christ. We were mean. We were mean to the waiters. We were mean to the waitresses. We were mean to the homeless. We kicked the dog if he got in the way. That's how we are without Christ. And then the Bible says to be patient. We're not patient outside of Christ. Move that car. I'm on my way to work. Who are you talking, who are you talking to? Get out of the way. Who are you talking to? Who are you talking to the guy in front of you that won't make the right turn? Because we are not patient. And I know we look like fools when we do that. And he can't hear or see anything we're doing. And he don't care. But with Christ, we're, we're more patient. We're patient in tribulation and we're to be called to be instant in prayer. So once you're converted and you have that earthly life change, then that's the blueprint. That's the blueprint for directing your service. 
And then the second coming changes your Christian life. It changes your Christian life. What do I mean by that? The Christian life where one, sometimes we just put one foot in front of the other. We get up in the morning. I like to pray, read my Bible before I step out into the world. I figured that out about 15 years ago, that that's the best way for me to start life if I put God first. It wasn't always like that. But I figured that out. I need to put God first before I, before I jump out there. And my entire Christian life changed, brother. When I prayed first, read my Bible, and then stepped out into the world. So the second coming of Christ does the same thing. It changes the course of your Christian life. Because we get, we, you get battered out there, especially with the, this 24-hour news cycle. Trump this, Trump that. Trump caused the sinking of the Titanic. Trump this, Trump that. You know, <laughs> you know, they, blame, they blame this guy for everything. You know, no respect for the office, but you know, he, he did it. I don't know what it is, but he did it. Like this kid in uh, Chicago, and I'm almost finished, who uh, supposedly got beat up. I don't know if you read that story or not. TV actor got beat up, you know, by these uh, MAGA Trump supporters wearing MAGA hats and face masks and um, 18 degree below zero weather, two o'clock in the morning in Chicago. Mm -hmm. You had to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out that one, you know. Turns out the MAGA supporters are, are like two guys from Nigeria. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's uh, Trump country. Yeah, <laughs> Nigeria. So my man's story is like falling apart, you know, all around the edges. We don't have to do that. The Christian life, our lives are secure in the fact that Christ is coming. We don't have to deal with the 24-hour news cycle that blasts us with this story about the fellow in. in uh, Chicago or blast us about what Trump has done wrong today. We don't have to give in to that. We don't have to cave into that. We don't have to care about what TMZ says. We don't have to cave into that. We don't have to cave into what people are saying on Facebook. And I, did I get a like today? They didn't like what I posted. You get all depressed and broken down because you don't like what they posted. Or oh, it's your birthday. You know, you're counting the number of people, you know, that say happy birthday to you. Oh, your Facebook friends. Hmm. What do your real friends say? <laughs> Did your, do your real friends call you? What do your Facebook friends call you? So we're outside of that. <laughs> we're outside of that with uh, the second coming of Christ. We don't have to deal with that. So he changes uh, the course of our Christian life. How? because I know he's coming. I know he's coming. So it doesn't matter what the 24-hour-a-day news cycle says, doesn't matter what the neighbors do, doesn't matter uh, about what uh, my coworkers are saying at, uh, at school or at church or whatever, not church, but at school or uh, at work, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. Because my hope, my strength, the direction of my course, my walk with Christ comes from the fact that I know my Lord is coming. A little, little around Robin Hood's barn, but we got to. So, Christ is coming soon. Now, I'll give you an example and I'll wrap up here. A few years ago, uh, two police officers in the city of Glendale were sent to a call domestic violence. The uh, lady in the house called the police 911, sent some officers. Uh, he's tearing the house up. 
So two officers are dispatched to the 911 call. One officer is a female. She's about five foot two, long distance runner, pretty good shape. Other officer is about five foot ten, uh, baseball player. He's in pretty good shape. So they get to the house. The lady opens the door, lets him in. She says, he's in the kitchen. They go back into the kitchen, and there's the suspect. This guy's about 6'2", 6'3", weighs 240 pounds. He's in pretty good shape. Fight was on immediately. As soon as they stepped into the kitchen, not a big kitchen, the fight was on. When you get into a fight as a cop, the first thing that flies away is that baton you have on your side. It flies out of the Sam Brown belt. Next thing to go is the radio. So the station knows that these officers are there, but the officers have not communicated on the radio. So the lady, when the fight started, this guy fighting these two officers, she gets on the phone, 911, your officers are in a fight. So the dispatchers dispatched Back off, backup officers to the location. Gave them authorization for code three, lights and sirens. Problem with this picture is, is that they've already been in a fight for five minutes, okay? And the location from downtown Glendale takes seven minutes to get there. So they're fighting this giant, and they've already been fighting for five minutes, and their backup is seven minutes away. This part of Glendale is so remote that the officers, their backup, had to get on the freeway, the two freeway, and take the two freeway north to get to where these officers were fighting. So if you do the math, they're fighting about 11 to 12 minutes, you know, with this suspect. All right, he took on both of them. The fight got to the place where the suspect and the officers had to take a break. Suspect sat in that corner, Officer sat in that corner. <laughs> staring at each other. Bad guy got his breath. What happened? Fight was on. Fight was on. So this fight lasted pretty close to 13 minutes. If you ever done anything for 13 minutes, okay? You know, playing soccer or whatever, you know, your second win after a while. And that right wrestler. It's a long time to fight, man. Right, Brother Harry? It's a long time. It's a long time. Especially when you have on a bulletproof vest, Sam Brown, combat boots, you know, a gun on your side. And he couldn't kill the guy. Why? He didn't have a gun. <laughs> he didn't have a knife. He didn't have a toothpick. All he had was his hands. So you can't take a gun and blow this guy up because you got to be able to explain to a jury why you did it. And they knew that. So time's ticking, time's ticking, time's ticking. And the officer said, we thought we were gone. We thought it was over. However, in the distance, they heard the sirens. The sirens from their backup. And it was like, like that. And then it gets louder. Woo, 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 woo. Okay, that means they're going through a stop sign or something. Get out of my way, you know? So the world, we call it the world. The world is rolling to get to this location. And the officer said, when we heard the sirens, we got stronger. When we heard the sirens, we got our second wind. And they got strong enough to lay on this guy <laughs> until their backup 
came through the door. Then when the backup got there, they hooked the guy up, put him in the back of a patrol car, took him to jail. The siren is the coming of Jesus Christ. We get stronger and stronger as Christ gets closer and closer and closer. Second coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ is the hope of the church. Second coming of Christ is a warning to the ungodly. And the second coming of Christ directs our service. Would you all bow your heads in prayer?